Good morning, Living Water. Good to see everybody out this morning. My name is Mike Bongo, and I have the great and awesome privilege, and that is the word, it is a privilege to share the word of God with you here today. We're going to continue our walk through Esther. Uh, so if you want to turn there now, you can. Uh, we'll get to it in a moment. We're going to be in Esther chapter 5. Uh, but I'm one of two preachers who go by the name Mike. Uh, so if you're new, it can be a little confusing. Uh, last weekend, that was Pastor Mike Leonzo. I am merely Mike Bonko. I'm the only one who calls me that, but uh, I'm hoping they'll catch on because we have all sorts of confusion with the mics on staff here. So uh, I want to get to Esther chapter 5, but I want to begin with probably one of my favorite quotes of all time. It's from a guy named John Piper. He's a preacher. You may have heard of him. He said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Isn't that good, right? We, we don't know what God is doing. We know he's at work. He is working. He's active in our lives. He's doing things, but we're not always aware of what he's doing. Uh, we might think we know, but we exist in this foggy space of uncertainty where we just, we have limited knowledge. You know, uh, April prayed it. Uh, God is all-knowing. We are not. Therefore, we're, we're trying to discern the will of God. What is he doing in our lives? What does he want from me? And we're not always aware of what that is because of that limited knowledge. And in our text today, I think we have uh, kind of two case studies. There's two individuals who are moving and making decisions. They're, they're taking action, but they're operating just like we do with limited knowledge. And the two workers are Esther and Haman. So that's kind of the framework that I'm using here is we have people that are at work. They're doing things. They're active. And if you need a little refresher uh, from one week to the next, I can't always remember where did we leave off. Uh, maybe you're new and you're a first-time guest here. I want to say welcome. Thank you for joining us. But let me give a, a quick kind of recap of the book of Esther. Where are we? Well, the setting is Persia. We're in the Persian Empire, Susa, to be specific. Dateline, 500 BC. The main characters in this true historical account, you have King Ahasuerus, sometimes known as King Xerxes. You have the queen. Her name is Esther, and she is a Jew. And she has a relative, a cousin named Mordecai. And then there's Haman, the Agagite. He is a high-ranking official in the government of Persia, second in power only to King Ahasuerus. So what's the plot? What's been going on? Well, Haman and Mordecai do not like each other, and that, I think, is putting it mildly. Haman has everybody bowing down to him in his presence, except one man, and his name is Mordecai. And so Haman, kind of being this egomaniac, doesn't like that very much. And they have this whole history behind them. So Haman doesn't want to just seek retribution against Mordecai alone. He wants to take out all of Mordecai's people. 
all the Jews in the Persian Empire, some 15 million people. As Esther 3.13 said, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. So last week, Mordecai gets word to Esther. And he says, you've got to do something. You have got to go before the king and, and, and make something happen. And Esther's like, well, you can't just waltz into the king's presence. That's not how it worked in Persian culture. He's an important guy. There's people that want to kill him. We've seen that earlier in the book. So there's, a, there's a, 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 probably a petition, a way to, to get his ear. You don't just waltz in uh, to his throne room. But Mordecai says, you've got to do this. You've got to do it. Maybe you were put in this position right now for such a time as this. You've got to do something. So she says, okay, but we need to fast. Let's take three days and, and no food, no drink, and then I will go in before the king. And if I perish, I perish. And that's where we left off last week. So we're going to take it verse by verse. If you have a Bible, Esther chapter 5, uh, we're just going to start with verse 1. If you're able to stand, please, as we hear from God in his word. All right, Esther 5, again, just beginning in verse 1 here. We're on page 413, if you have one of the, the Bibles in the room. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Thank you. You may be seated. So enter in our first worker, Esther. And I'm using that term worker loosely here. She's, she's definitely going to be at work here in these verses, and you're going to see that uh, as we proceed. So I do think the term is appropriate. But her work actually began in chapter 4 when she said, we, we need to gather together and fast. No food or drink for three days. And the idea behind a fast is to recognize and acknowledge our complete dependence upon God. We're helpless without Him. And so Esther has already begun with the decision for the fasting to, to work her strategy. And she has a strategy. Notice, when she got word from Mordecai, she doesn't immediately rush in. You know, I got time is of the essence. I have to go in and talk to the king now in a frantic manner. She says, no, let's take three days and let's fast collectively. And if you go three days without food or drink, uh, you're going to look a little rough. It's going to take a toll on your body. I, I have not gone three days without food uh, and drink. I have gone three days without food, and, but I've, I was drinking. And uh, yeah, you, you notice it. You feel it. Your body reacts to the lack of of food. So after these three days, she's maybe looking a little weak and, and weary. But notice, Esther does not use that to her advantage. She doesn't go in uh, to the king looking all stressed out. King, I'm so upset. 
I haven't been able to eat or drink for three days. You know, I, I'm coming to you and, you know, and she's got her hair all messed up and, you know, uh, you know, working up some tears, perhaps uh, mascara smeared all over her face. And she's just a, a total mess. And she comes in in an attempt to manipulate him and play upon his emotions. That's not her strategy. Not at all. That's not how she's working it. Instead, she puts on her royal robes. She gets all dressed up and she stands. The text says it twice. She's standing there. And I would add, it looks like she's standing with confidence. She's not cowering. She, she's not freaking out. Uh, she, there's no indication in the text that she's trembling or, or panicking. Uh, definitely not ruled by her emotions. The perfect picture of poise. And, and you see this quiet confidence, I think. It's being conveyed in the text. Yet, this is a very tense scene. I mean, she's in total violation of the law as she stands there. And we've seen already, the king, he doesn't take too kindly to a wife who doesn't follow standard protocol. We saw that with Vashti, right? She didn't respond to the king in the way he wanted, and that was it. He cut her off. So in, the, in this setting here, according to commentators, the, the king is there, he's on his throne, and next to the king, he's going to be flanked by a soldier. Uh, this is a guard who stands there ready with an axe. And if the king does not extend the golden scepter, the guard extends his axe. And that decision to enter into the king's presence unannounced will be the last decision Esther ever makes. So she doesn't know at this point, is she going to get the scepter or is she going to get the axe? Yet there she stands. So what happens? Verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, here it is, this is the moment, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And if we're following along with the story, you've got to let out a little sigh of relief. Whew, okay. But notice the text. She won favor in his sight. She didn't find favor. She didn't stumble upon favor. No, she won it. She's active in this passage. And I think the language of the text is following suit, conveying that. One favor indicates activity. Found favor indicates passivity. So there's this tension. Do you see it? There's the waiting and the working. Waiting, now it's time to get to work. And so she's working her plan, but she's very deliberate in doing it. Because in the following verses, at first glance, as you look at them, you might think she's panicking or she's procrastinating. Fear has gotten the best of her. We might be inclined to think that as we proceed here. I don't think that's what's going on. And I hope to show you that. So verse 3, And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. So here it is. This is the moment. This is what she wanted, right? You just come forward with it. King, I have some important news to tell you. I am a Jew, 
And we are under attack. My people are going to be killed. This wicked man named Haman must be stopped. I need you to do something. It's not how she approaches it. Very patient. Very deliberate. Especially when the king says, hey, whatever you want, whatever it is, up to half my kingdom. Now, that's not to be taken literally there. Uh, that, that's, that's an idiom. He's basically saying, I'm ready to grant your request. That, that, that's what's being conveyed with that uh, kind of king speak, the way he's talking there. We, we see Herod using that same language you might remember in the New Testament. So verse 4 says, And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. She invites the king and Haman to a party. That day. That day. What does that tell us? She's playing this out. Right? The arrangements have been made already. She undoubtedly had somebody do that for her, but the food is ready. You know, this isn't, she's going to, you know, microwave some Hot Pockets for him. Like, she's ready. The, the party is set. She's executing her plan. She's thought this through. She's been with him five years. You know, she, she knows the king. This dude likes parties. Remember, he threw a six-month-long party, I think, in chapter one, right? 180-day party. I mean, Charlie Sheen is like, dude, that's a little excessive, don't you think? And you've heard the phrase, the way to a man's heart is through where? His stomach. You've heard it, right? Esther knew that too. And she's using this to her advantage. And look at her timing. It's impeccable. It is. Verse 5, the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Go get Haman now. I'm hungry. Get this party started right. Let's do it. Verse 6. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. They feasted, had a great meal, now enjoying some wine. And the king again offers what do you want? Whatever it is, you got it. Now, the, the, the king's question here, it, it appears to come at a perfect time, does it not? He, he doesn't have hunger pains, appetite's been satisfied, had this great meal, full belly, the wine is flowing, right? His, his faculties aren't functioning at full capacity right now. You know, he, he might be very agreeable, in this moment. And I envision him, he's kind of like, you know, like sitting in there, you know, feeling it a little bit, got a buzz going, putting his arm around Esther, spilling wine everywhere, you know, and he's kind of like, you know, swaying, like, you know, thanks for this great party. <laughs> Slurred speech, burp, <laughs> you know, he's like, didn't you want something from me? Whatever it is, baby, you got it. 
you know, just lit up, right? This is the moment. This is, this is it, Esther. You can't ask for a better time. Tell the king what's going on. Put Haman on blast, right? Tell him the, the story. Strike while the iron's hot. Make your request known. What are you waiting for? What does Esther say? Eh, come to another party tomorrow. Like, what? What is going on here? She missed it. She missed her opportunity. Not so fast. She's working her plan. Very methodical as she's going through this. Verses 7 and 8. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. What is she doing here? Is this, is this panic? Is this, you know, she lost her nerve? Is she stalling? Cold feet? I don't think it's any of the above. There's a, a principle in sales. It's called the yes set technique. The yes set technique. Here's how it works. Uh, a salesperson will, will ask a prospective buyer uh, several questions that are, that are easy to answer. And they all have the answer, yes. For example, you're in Best Buy, you're checking out the, the TV selection, considering to buy a television. Salesperson comes up, says, hello, I see you checking out our, our TV selection. Do you like to watch TV? Yes. That's a great picture, isn't it? Yes. That would look great in your living room, wouldn't it? Yeah. Imagine watching the Super Bowl on that thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I bet your family would really like it. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Now, which one do you want? The Sony or the Samsung? It's not, would you like to buy one? That's a bad question. No salesperson is going to do that. They're assuming you're buying. Like, oh, you're buying one of these TVs because I'm working you with the yes set technique. This is how they do. And then what? Always be closing, right? Come on over here to the register. Let's, uh, let's get this TV into your living room, huh? And off you go. Yep, credit card in hand. And Esther is working this technique to perfection. You like feasts, don't you, king? Yes. I mean, who doesn't love a good meal, right? Yeah. You like wine? Yes. How about we do it again tomorrow? Yeah. How about you reverse the edict that's going to kill all my people? Yes. She, this is called a work. She's working him completely. And the wording of the second invitation is key. you got to follow it. She starts off, If it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, then come to another banquet. What, what she's doing here is Esther is effectively tying the king's attendance to the next banquet with a, a granting of the request that she's going to ask. She puts the two together. In other words, just by showing up, He's already agreed implicitly to whatever she's going to ask. 
It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Now, I was talking to Pastor Ben earlier today. Like, maybe she's panicking. I don't know. But this seems very thought out. You know, we don't, it, the text doesn't say, and Esther lost her nerve, therefore she planned another banquet tomorrow. We don't have that. We don't know. But it seems like she's very much in control of this situation. And there's another benefit to this strategy, because she hooks Haman, too. She, she's totally inflating Haman's pride, which is already bloated to begin with. I mean, this guy, you know, she, she invites him to another party, which builds up his already massive ego. And Haman, as we will see, gets fattened for the slaughter. That's coming later. But before we get to, to Haman in, in verses 9 through 14, I do think there's a principle being played out here in Esther chapter 5. And the principle is this. God rewards hard work. I think it's a biblical notion. It's, it's sort of like a proverb. You know, proverbs, if you know how proverbs work... They're not ironclad guarantees, right? They're just general truisms, right? If you, if you follow them, typically things will go that way. You train up a child in the way that he shall go, and when he's older, he will not depart from it. Well, we have people in this room that have trained up their children in the way they should go, and right now they're wayward. You know, it's not a guarantee. So if I had to file this like God rewarding hard work, under some principle that is taught explicitly in the Bible would be the principle of reaping and sowing. It seems that God sees our effort and then rewards us accordingly and blesses us accordingly. Again, it's not a perfect quid pro quo. You, you, you can't look at it like that. It's a general principle. And I would call it uh, hustle and favor. You hustle, God gives favor. Part of hustle and flow, this is hustle and favor. Let me use a, a, a basketball analogy. Football season is over. Um, sorry, Eagle fans, I hope you are healing well from last Sunday. Uh, now many of us, we turn our attention to basketball. I'll use an analogy in basketball. If you put in the work of hustling to the ball, you know, you, you're boxing out, you observe how the ball comes off the rim and you beat your guy to, to the spot for the rebound. It just seems like the ball kind of bounces your way. I, I think this is true. I've experienced it in my life. In high school, I played CYO basketball and I was a five foot eight shooting guard, okay? And I led the team in rebounds. And I'm sensing. There might be some skepticism in the room, <laughs> given my uh, Zacchaeus-like stature. But I'm prepared to, you know, produce documentation if necessary. <laughs> okay. But I led the team in rebounds. Not typical for a shooting guard to do that. And I also led the team in fouls and fouling out. <laughs> so what does that tell you? That is aggression. All right, that's just being aggressive, working, hacking, hustling, diving on the floor for loose balls. I was a scrapper. And this is what you got to do when God didn't give you a six foot eight frame where you could you know, jump out of the gym, 
You got to do what you got to do, right? Story of my life. Been married more than 25 years. God has blessed me in that regard. I don't think I bring a lot to the table there either. Not tall, dark, or handsome. You know, Pastor Mike and Evan, they got the height thing, right? Pastor Ben has a nice dark complexion. I'm 0 for 3. I don't know that any of us are particularly handsome either, so... Notice how I dragged everybody down with me. But God has blessed my marriage. I don't bring a lot to... I'm not handy, like, you know, it's just... But I, you ask my wife, and she'll tell you. She'll be at 11 a.m. service. You stick around and ask her. Without her hearing this, does Mike try? She'll be like, yeah, he, he has to. He tries hard. He's lacking in so many areas. I put in the work. She wouldn't say that. But she'll tell you, I do try. I put in the effort. You know, Brad Pitt can coast, all right? I can't. I, I got to work hard. I'm a grinder. Story of my life. And I think it's the story of Living Water Community Church, too. And God has certainly blessed us. You ask anybody who's been around this place some 15, 20 plus years, there has been, um, I guess you call it a philosophy. It's either stated explicitly or it's implied implicitly. And, that, and it's this. Whatever it takes, get the job done. Make it happen. I was in this room last Tuesday. Just this past Tuesday, Pastor Mike said these words. He said, his personal philosophy in life has been, I'm just going to outwork you. Now, lest there be any misunderstanding, Pastor Mike does not ruthlessly work us into the ground. You know that's not true. Because the context in which he said that we were talking about burnout. We're working through a book called uh, Zeal Without Burnout. And, and in that same meeting last Tuesday, I laid out like seven different ways living water cares for us as a staff. So we are well cared for. Don't misunderstand me. But make no mistake, we are called to work and work hard and work hard with excellence. And we do our work as unto the Lord, not to men anyway. But burnout's real. It exists. It's out there, right? We got to be cognizant of that, right? But can we just be honest, though? I mean, really, how many of us are very far from burnout? You know, we got a lot more in the tank. You know, I, I think if you use the phrase binge watch regularly, I'm not sure the word burnout ought to be on your lips, honestly. Esther is working here. She's working. The Lord is blessing her efforts. Things are falling into place. I don't know how else to understand this other than hustle and favor. With her limited knowledge of how things are going, we have the benefit of looking back, right? You can read it. You've heard the story. You know how it goes. Put yourself there. The people involved in the moment don't know how the story ends. you got to keep that in mind as we proceed. That's why I wanted to take it verse by verse, so if we're not familiar with it, we can see it being you know, laid out as it unfolds. So let's look at verses 9 through 14. And Haman 
went out that day joyful and glad of heart. And when Haman saw Mordecai <coughs> excuse me, in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Her name means gold. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above, all, above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So who's Haman working for? Why does Haman do anything for himself? I mean, this dude is self-employed. He's working for self all day, every day. That's who Haman is working for. He's not putting in effort to, you know, selflessly seeking to save lives. No, he kills anybody who's in the way of his own self-glorification. He's on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of the work he's putting in. So he comes out the banquet. He's feeling good. Had a great meal. You know, he had, had the wine, you know, got the blood alcohol level of 2.5 or 0.25, you know, flowing through him. He's coming out all joyful, you know, just leaving the party. I won't do a drunk Haman impersonation, but, you know, he's walking out and he sees Mordecai. He's like, you. And Mordecai's like, look who's still not bowing. And Haman is furious. And it's by God's common grace that Haman didn't go over there at that moment and choke the life out of Mordecai. Instead, he goes home. He goes home, gets his buddies together, his wife is there, and Haman does what Haman does best. He talks about himself. The me monster is at work. The only thing worse than a me monster is a drunk me monster. And I get that term me monster from a comedian you may have heard of. His name's Brian Regan. He does a bit about the me monster, and, and he really, he's, he's describing Haman perfectly with it. So I have a little clip. Go ahead, Brenda, if you would, please. I'm actually kind of quiet off stage. A lot of people don't realize that. I was at a dinner party recently, a bunch of people that I don't know. One guy talking plenty for everybody. Me, myself, right? And then I, and then myself, right? Me, me. I couldn't tell this one about I because I was talking about myself, and then me, 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 me. Beware the me monster. And that's Haman. I'm not done yet. Hold your applause. Now, what's interesting about that video, it's called I Walked on the Moon. 
All right, again, if you're sad that football is, is over, you're looking for something to do today, you want to get some laughs, it's free on YouTube. Brian Regan, I Walked on the Moon. And the reason it's called I Walked on the Moon, and I'm going to show you here in a sec. See, good comedy, it provides social commentary, but does it in a way that's humorous. You know, at least that's what appeals to me. I'm not into, like, slapstick kind of stuff. Like, that, that to me is funny because... I've met people like that, right, uh, in this text here. And, and it was two weeks ago I compared myself to Haman, so let's just think I'm, like, elevating myself. But he, the reason it's called I Walked on the Moon is, is what Brian Regan's going to lay out. He says the me monster is elevating himself, right? And that's what Haman's doing in our text. But Brian Regan, as he puts it, he has a social fantasy where he can then top the me monster, and let's go check that out, please. What is it about the human condition? People get something out of that. That's why I have a social fantasy. I wish I was one of the 12 astronauts who have been on our moon. They must love knowing they can beat anybody's story whenever they want. They can sit back quietly at a dinner party while some other person, some me monster, is doing his thing and let him go. Let him run with the line. While you be quiet. Oh, really? <laughs> Let him have his moment. Yeah, I'm a big traveler. I have my business all. I got my own global enterprise I got to check on. You know, driving in the Autobahn because I keep a fleet of sports cars over in Zurich. You know, there's a Swiss account that I want to check out. Mount Kilimanjaro expedition. Might have to cancel that. You know, runways in Aspen are a lot shorter the first time you go in there. You know, you know, the Pacific Rim Company are going to try to take that over. And it's global enterprise. <laughs> I walked on the moon. Pride. Pride. It is this insidious thing that we all have it. We all struggle, if you're honest. And, and it's like a catch-22. You're like, yeah, you know, I, I don't have any pride. And I'm quite proud of the fact that I don't have pride. We all have it, right? To deny it means you got it. So you, there's no winning. And it's just the, it's the human condition. He said, what is it about the human condition? See, Brian Regan wants to just best him. He wants to go above. So pride, because we all struggle with it, you ought to war against it. Know you have it. Acknowledge it. War against it, not feed it. But that's exactly what Haman's doing in the text. Verses 11 and 12. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me, 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 come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow, also, I am invited by her together with the king. This is some next-level boasting right here, right? Talks about his money. He's, he's blessed with a number of sons. We will learn later that it's 10. And I like how he's doing that in front of his wife, who's like, yes, Haman, I'm aware that 10 children popped out of my body. Uh, the stretch marks remind me every day. Thanks. 
He talks about his promotions, that he just came from this banquet with the king and the queen, and he's going to another one tomorrow. Then he says in verse 13, I, I love this. He says, yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And I can't help but wonder if any of his 10 sons are within earshot of that comment right there, that they mean nothing to him. But again, I think we can relate to Haman. I think we can. Here's, here's how it works in my life. I'll give you an example. You know, deliver a sermon and, and people will, you know, kindly send an email perhaps. You know, you maybe get a couple of emails, maybe five emails like, hey, Mike, thanks for that. Uh, you know, I, it was a real blessing uh, to me. Uh, you know, God really used you. I, I appreciated that insight that you gave. It really, I found that really helpful. You know, and I, I reply like, praise the Lord. Thank, you know, thank God, you know, that he would use me. That's, that's my standard response, right? I'm just a tool. That's, I mean that in more than one way. <laughs> but then I'll get an email that'll say, Hey, Mike, um, thanks for your willingness to preach. And I know you're up there doing the best you can. And you know what word is coming, right? But anything said prior to that but in those other five emails could be 500. What does Haman say? Worth nothing to me. Like, they do mean something. But it's like, I forget all about that. And what do I focus on? Everything that came after the but. Right? I think this is true. This is how we do. If I said to you, if I said to you, you're beloved in your workplace, for the most part. <laughs> Which part of that did you focus on? I told you you're beloved, right? No, it was the, for the most part, just who doesn't like me? Who is it? I want names. How could they not like me? I'm me. Is that not pride? I think it is. We must just realize not everybody is going to like us. And you have scriptural evidence. Jesus said, they hated me. They're going to hate you too. Paul, he says, if you seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. And if you do engage in this fruitless effort of trying to be liked by everybody, one, it isn't going to happen. Two, you won't be able to stand with the Apostle Paul who said to the Galatians, he said, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Just face it. Not everybody is going to like you. And Haman doesn't like Mordecai. And evidently, neither do his friends or Haman's wife. Because here's the last verse. Verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. You just committed murder. Now, hop and skip along to a banquet. I mean, how depraved are we that these words would come out of somebody's mouth? 
This idea pleased Haman, of course it did, and he had the gallows made. They're like, you can't possibly enjoy this banquet tomorrow with Haman still alive or Mordecai still alive. You've got to take him out. Have the gallows built about 75 feet high in the air. Tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then you'll be able to go and enjoy the banquet. And that's how chapter 5 ends. Another cliffhanger. And we'll get to it next week when we pick up, Lord willing, with chapter 6. But let me close with this. I talked about two workers, Esther and Haman. Esther is working on behalf of herself and her people. Again, there's 15 million lives hanging in the balance as we make our way through this story here. Can't forget that. Her working there is to save lives, right? Hers and others. Haman, he's working purely for self. He's all about self. He's looking to take lives for himself. But there's another worker in the passage. It's kind of hidden. I love that we sang a song, talked about the hiddenness of God. Like, hmm, that's interesting that they would choose that song with that lyric. This, this, uh, this worker is hidden in the shadows. I think the lyric was, he'll shine in the shadows. Well, he's shining in the shadows here. It's the invisible hand of God. Is at work. We pointed it out numerous times. God is nowhere mentioned in the book of Esther. There's no recording of prayers going up. There may have been. We just don't have that in the text. Uh, no prophet prophesying, but God is still working. Think about it. Pastor Mike last week said, Esther, she's a changed woman. Is she not? Right? She has moved from being passive to being active. She's, she's taking responsibility. She's taking action. She was taking instructions earlier in the book. Now she's giving them. She's moved from victim to victor. She seemed kind of weak early on. Now she's strong. Well, it raises the question, where does this strength come from? Again, it's not explicit in there, but there appears like this quiet confidence about Esther where she looks a lot like what we read from the psalmist in Psalm 121 who says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from, from the Lord who made heaven and earth you know and her quiet confidence is characteristic of of uh, someone who has put their trust in god you know perhaps esther in her devotional time had memorized proverbs 21 verse 1 and it says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the lord he turns it wherever he will yet she doesn't just lay back well, the, the, the king's heart is in, in God's hands, right? He's going to do it, and I just, I'll just wait for this to happen. No, God uses means, and she knows I'm called to get busy here. I need to work, and the same for us, right? She's the one who came up with the idea of fasting. She put on the royal robes. She courageously stepped into the king's court. She wins the king's favor. She planned the banquets. She worked him like a mark. However, with all of that, 
The king didn't have to extend his scepter, but he did. The king didn't have to come to the banquet, but he did. The king didn't have to insist upon Haman being there, but he did. And the the king didn't have to agree to a second banquet, but he did. That is God at work. Using Esther, he's working through her. And God is still doing the same thing today. He uses people then and now to accomplish his will. So the question for all of us here is, who are you working for? You working for self? Are you working to make your name great? Are you working for God? Are you working for others? Who are you working for? See, we all start out the same, very selfish, working for self, just like Haman. But praise God, Jesus is a worker too. He's a miracle worker. He does amazing work. Selflessly, sacrificially, he left the glory of heaven and came to this place to do the impossible, the, the, really the greatest work that anyone has ever done. Live the life that you and I should have lived. He did it. You talk about work, right? Think it's easy? It's work. He's fully human. Can't forget that. Then he died a substitutionary death on the cross. That's work. He's putting in work. And on the cross, what did he cry out? My work is done. It is finished. It's finished. His work is completed. He rose from the grave three days later, defeating death once and for all. And he takes selfish people like you and like me, and he makes us new and employs us. We're part of his team. We're on his, in his army, if you will. And we're called to work. It's been said, Jesus didn't come to take bad people and make them good. He came to take dead people and make them live. And live for him and others. The message is not, don't be like Haman. The message is, you are like Haman. And Jesus died for your Haman-like behavior. The message is not, be like Esther. Look, look at her confidence. Look to her courageous behavior in, the, in that courtyard, in that interaction with the, with the king. That's not the message. The message is look to the cross. Look to Christ. Be like him. Through repentance and faith, you and I can have that quiet confidence. We can have that courage. It comes from knowing our sins are forgiven. They're paid for. We will not suffer for them. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we can operate and do our work based upon the finished work of Christ. That's how we function, knowing the work has been accomplished. Yet we have our role to play. And it's not so that we would stand boldly before some earthly throne, but rather that we would come boldly to the throne of grace. We'll close with Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let's pray. 
Lord, we come to you now. We come boldly. Not because of our great works. Not because we're anything great. Because of the great work of your son, Jesus. He's great. When the edict of death was upon us because of our sin, he stepped into human history to reverse the curse and rescue us from an eternal death. On behalf of all my brothers and sisters here in Christ, we simply want to say thank you. Thank you for making us your children and employing us as your ambassadors, representing you to this lost and broken world. May the joy you've given us be our strength as we carry out the work you've given us to do with the resources that you have provided. May this offering we're about to collect be used for that purpose, to make your name known throughout the world, starting right here in Harrisburg. You are doing a great work in our world, and it's a great privilege for us to be a part of it. We thank you in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen.